Good morning. Children, I bet you're glad that Mr. Wilson didn't ask for any volunteers to demonstrate the spanking spoon. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. So we continue our series on fatherhood. Uh, thus far, we have focused more on principles than practices, and that's because it's easy to turn a series of messages on fatherhood into three tips for this and five steps to the other thing. As Americans, we tend to be a practical people. We like to get things done. We like quick fixes, and guys, in particular, can be like this. Uh, we don't like to study instruction manuals. We just want to put the thing together ourselves, and many a night has been wasted by this foolishness. We don't want a map. We know exactly where we're going. And many a car trip has suffered because of this practice. Guys are like this, which is why I've been slow to get to the mechanics of fathering. But today, we finally are gonna get down into the nitty gritty of what's a dad to do. Today, we're looking at fatherhood being practiced in the home. And the title of my message is The Duties of Dads. The Duties of Dads. As Jacob said, our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Please follow along as I read God's word. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Help us to receive your admonishment today as only forgiven people can. Give us life according to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Here God directly addresses fathers as heads of their homes. Moms are included. Verse one, children uh, obey your parents. Verse two, honor your father and mother. So moms are included here, but the charge is directed squarely at us dads. And here I'll make two points. First, this fits neatly with what we studied last week. Both mom and dad are equal in value and essence. The mom contributes things to the family that the dad doesn't, but ultimately God ordained the dad as head of the home. However, this is not a permit to please himself. Rather, it is a charge to take responsibility. So when God says that fathers are to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, he means dads take responsibility for all the training necessary for your kids to flourish in all of life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. More on this in a minute. But the point not to miss is that dads, as head of your home, this is not a permit to please yourself. It is a charge to take responsibility. And as head of, head of your home, like we said last week, that does not make you boss of your home. Dads are not the boss of their home. Christ is the boss of the home. Christ is head of the church, Ephesians 5.23. Christ is the head of every man, 1 Corinthians 11.3. And dads are charged here with bringing their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This means your authority, dads, is a derived authority. Your authority is a delegated authority. As head, you are regulated by a greater head, one to whom you will give an account. So a dad's authority exists not to get him his own way or to get him his own will, but to align his family with God's will. 
This is what fatherly authority is for. Second, I would also point out here that God's commands are generally directed at our weaknesses. God's commands are generally directed at our weaknesses. We are told to do things we're likely to neglect doing if we aren't told to do them. For instance, children are told to obey their parents exactly because that's a weakness for them. Husbands are commanded earlier in chapter five of Ephesians to sacrifice for their wives exactly because that's a weakness for us. Wives are called to respect their husbands exactly because that's a weakness for them and in the same way, fathers are commanded to take responsibility for the raising of their children exactly because that's a weakness for us. A number of years ago, there was a a popular book uh, uh, amongst Christians entitled Wild at Heart. The aim of the book was to help men recover their masculine heart. According to the author, the problem men had is rooted in the garden. So far, I agree. But then he asserts that the secret of a man's soul, some men didn't know you had a secret to your soul. Well, apparently we do. The secret to your soul, your masculine identity, if you will, is wrapped up, according to this author, in the fact that God made Adam, the first man, outside the garden and brought him into it. So men were made in the wild and are therefore, in fact, wild at heart. We were made to live a life of strength and freedom and adventure. Now the problem with this is it's a mixed bag. There's things I agree with and there's things I disagree with. Yes, men do love strength and freedom and adventure, but God knew exactly what he was doing when he put man in the garden. We, may, we were made for freedom, But as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5, you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And men were made strong, but we were made strong so that we could bear the glorious burden of taking responsibility for the well-being of others. But when we abdicate this responsibility, when we let it fall to the floor, women are left to pick up the pieces. Gentlemen, scripture tells us, where there is no vision, the people perish. So here, guys, is the vision. Job offered sacrifices and interceded on behalf of his children, and that was his righteousness. Joshua's household followed him in serving the Lord. In Deuteronomy, it was the father who was in charge with instructing the next generation about God. Likewise, the psalmist testifies, our fathers have told us of God's past deeds. Proverbs is written as a manual of instruction from a father to his children. And in both Ephesians and Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, Dads, you are responsible for raising your kids in the Lord. So dads, heads of your home means responsible for your home. You are responsible for the training necessary for your kids to flourish in all of life under the Lordship of Christ. Your wife can help you with this. She may do a lot of the work in this, but ultimately, this is more your domain than it is hers. That said, what exactly is a dad to do? What are the duties of a father in carrying this out? Well, Paul lists four things for dads, four things that dads are to do, the duties of a dad. One in the negative, three in the positive. 
So, four points this morning. Number one, the duty of a dad is provoke not your children. Provoke not your children. The first, first duty of a dad is to not provoke his children to anger. Now, moms can do this too. Unfortunately for the children, both parents are equally gifted at provoking their kids to anger. Is this not true? This is, this, some of you admit this, some of you do not. Women, you've wanted to say amen to a lot of the things I've been saying, but that was an opportunity for you to own it as well. It's all right, we'll work on this. <clears throat> Back to my point. Both are equally gifted at provoking their children, but exactly because dad is head of the home, exactly because the buck stops with dad, exactly because uh, he is the authority figure, he must be especially careful not to abuse his authority, not to abuse his position, not to abuse his strength, and thus provoke his children to anger. Luke 17, one and two, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Dads, to assist you, I sat down and made a list of the ways I think dads are tempted to exasperate their children. I made a list and uh, unfortunately it became the length of my sermon. So then I went back through and I tried to like chop it all down and I came up with just seven, seven ways dads tempt their children to exasperation, provoke them to anger. Uh, and the first is we provoke them when we do not consider their frame. We provoke them when we do not consider their frame. In Psalm 103, we're told, our Father in heaven has compassion on us because he knows our frame. That's good fathering. Bad fathering refuses to consider the frame of a child. For example, there are two kinds of foolishness, immoral and moral. Dads must be careful to correct them both. Immoral foolishness is a sin for which Jesus died. It's Junior talking back to mom, or stealing a cookie before dinner, or not obeying. This kind of folly is more, more serious than stupid moral or moral stupidity and should be admonished earnestly. Alternatively, moral foolishness is indiscretion. It's immaturity. It's thoughtlessness. It's being a child. It's your son taking a handful of butter up to his brother in their bedroom because he wanted to share some. Don't ask me where that example came from. It's, it's your son plugging the waffle maker in and toasting your coasters because he wants to make waffles for the family. Don't ask me if that's the same son. A father must be vigilant, obviously one needs to be vigilant with children like this, but a father must be vigilant to correct this kind of foolishness, but not in the same way he corrects the other kind of foolishness. Children will be children. A second example, don't skip naps, feed them junk food, keep them up to 11.30, and then discipline them for falling apart. Someone should discipline you for pulling them apart. Consider their frame. Number two, you provoke your children when you're not a yes man. You provoke your children when you're not a yes man. What do I mean by this? I'm not saying you should give them whatever they want, 
But I am saying, your garden of yes should have a tree of no in it and not the other way around. Always remember, our Father in heaven is generous, not stingy. The whole garden, the whole garden, we talked about this last week, was ours to enjoy. And the only thing God said no to was the thing that would rob us of joy. And now, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Our God is a generous Father, and we, as fathers, should resemble Him. We should want to say yes. We should want to bless our kids. But when our whole home is a, or when our home is a whole garden of no's and a lonely tree of yes, this provokes our children. Again, this does not mean we give our kids whatever they want. We must and we should say no. But when we must say no, and it should be a must, we should also be very clear about what we are saying yes to instead. Example, when we say no to candy, it's because we are saying yes to a kid not all sugared up, running amok, and in need of discipline. We are helping the kid. When Susie comes home and says she thinks Bobby likes her, <laughs> Bobby, <laughs> I think he likes me. If we do not approve of Bobby, we need to tell Susie so. We need to tell her no. But then we should sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart with Susie about exactly the kind of boy we will say yes to. And dads don't make him be the next Jesus Christ. <laughs> Unreasonable expectations got cut from my list, but there it is. Number three, don't, if you want to provoke your, if, or if you don't want to provoke your children, how am I doing this? Now I've got all mixed up in what I'm saying. Okay, provoking your, if you don't want to provoke your children. Yeah, thank you, that's what I needed. If you do want to provoke your children, don't listen to them. If you do want to provoke your children, don't listen to them. Parents often make the mistake of forgetting that our children are people. Our children are people, little people, young people, but still people, which means they are trying to reason things out. They have feelings about things. They have fears and dreams, and we should hear them out. Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Number four, don't give them your full attention. If you wanna provoke your kids, don't give them your full attention. For a bit of sarcasm, kids love it when we're only half listening to them, don't they? <laughs> when we try and talk to them while we're also doing something on our phone or watching something on TV or working through something in our heads. Dads, if you want your kids to look you in the eye when you are talking to them, then love them likewise. Number five, if you want to provoke your children, don't be consistent. Don't be consistent. Discipline them for something one day, then don't discipline them for that the next morning, but then do discipline them for that the next afternoon. Your inconsistency is disorderly. Your inconsistency is inconsistent and it will drive your children mad. Number five, or six, sorry. Number six, if you want to provoke your children, don't provide an explanation Instead, require raw obedience. 
you want to provoke your children, don't provide an explanation, just provide, or just require raw obedience. Now this is not to say that a dad should allow his kid to dodge obedience with requests for explanations. You know what this is like. Son, I need you to clean the garage today. Why do I have to clean the garage? Or, why, it looks clean to me. That's usually dodging obedience. But legitimate requests for understanding should not be met with because I said so. There's a why that's trying to dodge and there's a why that's trying to discover. And dads must do the hard work of discerning between the two. Number seven, last one, number seven, if you want to provoke your children, don't prepare them to launch out. Don't prepare them to launch. Don't prepare them for independence. Kids grow up and at some point, they should want to go away. They should want to leave you. They should want to spread their wings and fly. They should not want to live in your basement indefinitely. And all the parents said, amen. amen. That your son wants independence, that your daughter wants independence is not wrong. It's a design feature. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So that your boy wants to make some choices for himself, that he wants to sell out on his own course, or that your daughter hopes to marry some bozo that'll never be good enough for her, and all the dads said, amen. And yet for all that, that is exactly how it's supposed to be. And that's because, here it is, maturity means learning to manage your freedom. Maturity means learning to manage your own freedom. Don't make the mistake of indulging sin while children are little and the sin is tolerable. You can stand your kid pitching a fit in the grocery mart when he's just five years old. It's embarrassing, but you can indulge that. And then you can keep indulging and you can keep indulging until all of a sudden that kid is 15, 16, or 17 and he can get a girl pregnant or he can steal the car and he can sneak out at night. When that happens, parents who have been indulging sin sometimes clamp down and bring curfews and rules and requirements, but that's backwards from how it should be and it's provoking. It should work the other way around. Start with the requirements when they're young and teach them responsibility. Then, as they grow older and more dependable, remove the rules one by one. Help them to learn how to manage their freedom. Prepare them to launch out on their own. And side note, believe me, you want them to make the mistakes they're going to make while they're still in the home with you, where you can influence them and teach them and instruct them and help them. All right, so that's point number one. The duty of a dad is not to provoke their children. Moving to the positive, the next duty, a second duty of a dad, is to nourish your children. Nourish your children. Now, if you're paying attention to the text, and you should be, you gotta be wondering, where is he getting that? Where does it say, nourish your children? Good question. Nourish is another way of translating the phrase, bring them up. Bring them up, nourish them. Now, when we think about nourish, 
are nourishing, you might think of a mother with her children, or maybe even a a nursing mom with an infant. It's a very life-giving word, and one we don't tend to associate with fathers, but God does. It's a dad's duty to nurture his children. Calvin defined this as fondly cherishing them. Fondly cherishing them. This is the relationship of loving attention, of caring attention, that instruction and discipline should take place in. Let me get at this from another way. Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 4 say this. My son, do not forget my teaching. So this is a father speaking to his child. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. All right, one thing we learn here is that it is the glory of a child, it is the glory of a child, and maybe here we're speaking especially about teenagers and young adults in some ways, it is the glory of a child to wear their father's instruction like a garland around their neck. In other words, for all to see. This is what I'm proud about, this is what I value, honoring and obeying my dad's instruction. So a dad sees his daughter leaving the house and he says, you're not going dressed out like that, right? And she says, well, I was going to. Are you saying I can't? And dad says, I'm not saying you can't, I'm saying I counsel against it. I advise against it. Well, it is the glory of the daughter to wear her father's instruction out that night. In other words, to go back and change to honor her father at the very least. That is the glory of a child. Now, it's here that many a dad might be tempted, and mom, to look down an aisle and see if a certain somebody is paying attention to what the pastor is saying about honoring a parent's instruction. But fathers refuse from doing so because I have a question for you. How do you get your kid to want to wear your instruction? How do you get your kid to want to wear your instruction like a garland around the neck? Because here's the deal. You can tell them till you're blue in the face that it's for your glory, this is your glory and it's for your good. And you can tell them until you run out of breath and still your kid won't want to do it. So how does a dad get his kid to want to honor him? And this gets at the very heart of parenting, really the heart of it. It's not conformity we're after. It's loyalty and love. It's not conformity. It's loyalty and love. The kind of obedience described here grows out of a loyalty to someone. And personal loyalty grows out of a love for someone. And this, friends, is gospel. This is gospel. Jesus did not die for our blind obedience. He died to regenerate our hearts. He died so that we could have hearts that can love him. And out of love grows our obedience. 
we want to obey Jesus because, or we want to obey him because, uh, because we love him first. Love motivates our obedience. It's the loyalty in which we want to obey. And we love Jesus because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So dads, if you want your kids to love you with the kind of loyalty that willingly puts on your instruction like garland around the neck, then love your children. Fondly cherish them. Nourish your kids. And to this end, I have four brief recommendations. I'm trying to drive towards practical for you guys. Four, four brief recommendations. One, just enjoy them. Just enjoy them. This harkens back to one of the first messages where God said over Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Every kid ought to know how much their dad is well pleased with them. Just enjoys them. And one, enjoy your children. Two, take an interest in what they're interested in. Take an interest in what they're interested in. Uh, I've shared this example from my own childhood before. When I was a kid, I didn't like sports. I still don't like sports, but I didn't like sports back then, and I liked comic books. I liked comic books, I liked X-Men comic books. My dad liked sports. My, did not, my dad did not like comic books. But because I did, he did. He took an interest in what I was interested in, and that left an impression. Take an interest in what they're interested in. Third, to repeat a point I already made, remember their frame. Nourish them by remembering their frame. To connect it to later, discipline instruction should be tied specifically to their person and personality. And then fourth and finally, give them quality time. You, you need to give them quality time, but don't let that be an excuse for not also giving them quantity of time. Kids need both, quality and quantity. Proverbs 23, 26, here is a father's real cry. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. All right, duty number three. Duty number three, discipline your children. Discipline your children. Here's what Jacob was getting at. God takes seriously a dad's duty to direct his children down the path of righteousness. So Proverbs 23, verse 19. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way, or down the right path. Dads are responsible for directing their kids down the right path in life. And when their kid strays off that path, it's dad's job to go and get them and bring them back. And that is what discipline is. Discipline is always a rescue mission. Discipline is always a rescue mission. Have you noticed that Jesus introduces his teaching on church discipline in Matthew 18 by telling which parable? the parable of the lost sheep. If one goes astray, you leave the 99 to go and find them and bring them back. This is the context in which church discipline takes place. This is the spirit in which church discipline takes place. You go and retrieve your brother who is erring in sin. You're on a rescue mission. And just as it is in God's family, the church, so it is in your family, your home. Discipline is a rescue mission. 
in my devotions this past week, I, I just happened to read the story of Eli and his sons in 1 Samuel uh, 2 through 3 or 4, somewhere in there. Eli was the chief priest of Israel under, or I mean in the generation before King Saul. And he had two sons who were the scum of the earth. I think that's a, that's a fair paraphrase. Uh, they were priests under him, but scripture says they were corrupt men who did not know the Lord. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt and they slept around with the women who served at the temple. Their sins became so notorious that Eli heard about it. And so we're told that he rebuked them. He told them their deeds were evil and that God would surely judge them. But we're told they did not listen to him. Now, a little bit after that, we're told two prophets come and speak to Eli. The first is just the prophet he sends, the second is Samuel. And the first one tells him that God is now holding Eli responsible for his son's behavior. And he accuses Eli, God does, of honoring them over God, of loving them over God. How do he do that? Well, the second prophet, Samuel, explains to him, he says, his sons blasphemed God, and Eli did not restrain them. Did not restrain them. Eli rebuked them, but he did not restrain them. Even though they were grown men, he could have dismissed them as priests, or he even could have called the Levites in to have them forcefully removed, but he did not. He did not restrain them. The sad story of Eli's failure stands as a cautionary tale to all dads. God takes our duty of discipline very seriously. And the critical years for this are the early years. Instead of loose tolerance when the kids are little and clamping down as they grow older, a biblical approach is exactly the opposite. We said this earlier. The older they get, the fewer restrictions they should have. They need less regulating and more relating. A child properly reared will experience more and more freedom as they get older. They will know greater and greater independence. And this works, this works right, when they are disciplined early in life and internalize that discipline. Now, when kids are very young, one restraint God prescribes is the rod. God prescribes the rod. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline, discipline drives it far from him. Also, Proverbs 13, 24. Parents consider this word. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Parents are given the rod to correct their child's behavior. Spanking is how we can bring little kids back onto the path of righteousness. Now, modern child-rearing experts disagree. They think they know better than God. They view spanking as a form of child abuse. But God's view on child abuse is one of failure to use the rod. God's view on child abuse is one of failure to use the rod. Hear this word, Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Whew, okay. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. So refusal to use the rod is a failure to head your kids off from destruction. Refusal to use the rod is a failure to head your kids off from destruction, and that is abusive. 
Now, as kids get older, the principle of the rod stays the same, but the form of it changes. Come six or seven years old, and it looks like withholding privileges. It's the TV taken away from Timmy. It's the extra chores imposed upon Charlie. It's the early bedtime for Betty. However, we must be diligent to discipline our children still. Uh, Proverbs 19.19 warns, a man of great anger will suffer the penalty, but if you rescue him, means if you spare him from that penalty, you will only have to do it again, implied again and again and again. In other words, you're not correcting the behavior. You're not changing the character. This is just basic cause and effect. If a kid throws a fit, be he five or 15, if you rescue him from the penalty he deserves, if you spare him from the discipline he needs, you'll just have him doing the same fit throwing over and over and over again. So here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. You get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. You get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. So dads, be faithful to discipline your children. Okay, we've been driving towards practical with this one, but I'll get it even a little more practical. Four guiding principles for disciplining your kids. Four guiding principles for disciplining your kids. One, never discipline in anger. Never discipline in anger. Galatians 6.1 instructs us, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Here it is, dads. If you are hot to discipline your kid, you are disqualified from doing so. If you are hot to discipline your kid, you are disqualified from doing so. Obviously, this applies to moms as well. Discipline should be carried out in a spirit of gentle restraint. Now, having said that, just because you are disqualified doesn't mean you shouldn't discipline them. It simply means you need to discipline yourself first. You need to submit to discipline, you need to repent of your sin, and then having been repenting, having repented of your anger, you need to go and faithfully discipline your child. Number two, number two, guiding principle for discipline. Discipline should sting, but never damage. Discipline should sting, but never damage. Damage is abuse. Damage is abuse and must be repented of and confessed. Godly discipline does not inflict damage, but it does inflict pain. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline stings and pain communicates. It gets through to your kid. It gets to their heart. It opens doorways. But if it doesn't get through your kid, then you may be doing it wrong, and there are lots of brothers and sisters in the church who can help you more with the administration of that. Fourth and finally, and maybe most importantly, I don't know if I can say most importantly, but certainly significantly, discipline is restorative. Discipline is restorative. Yes, discipline is about correcting behavior, but... It's about, it's also about, it's centrally about restoring fellowship. Restoring fellowship. 1 John 1, uh, 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So sin disrupts fellowship with God, and sin disrupts fellowship with the family. But repentance restores it all. Your child should be assured, if they confess their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them. uh, Fellowship is restored. And likewise, you do as God does. When your kids receive a discipline, when they are sorry for it, when they acknowledge their sin, they should feel your forgiveness. They should know the cleansing of you releasing them from their sin and reuniting with them in love and acceptance. Fellowship is restored. All right, fourth, and finally, fourth duty of a dad, instruct your children. Fourth duty of a dad, instruct your children. In many ways, instruction is far more important than what you do in times of discipline. Formative instruction shapes your child's thinking and thus shapes your child's life. Like a potter molding clay, you're shaping your kids by teaching them how to think. And you're to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. So this is not about teaching them how to change the oil in the car or how to throw a football or anything like that, although those are good fatherly instructions to to bring. You can do that. But this is specifically about giving them a biblical worldview and equipping them to understand life from a distinctively Christian perspective. For example, when we teach our kids not to call other kids names, you stupid. We hear that, right? You stupid. The re- Sorry, kids, I just kind of used a bad word in front of you. The reason we give them is more profound than, well, that's not nice. Or you wouldn't like kids calling you a name. We teach our kids that other kids are made in the image of God and thus have inherent value and deserve our respect. And that's why we don't call them names. In his book, Instructing a Child's Heart, Ted Tripp says, with instruction, we give our our kids big truths to grow into, not little truths to grow out of. That's what we're doing in instruction. We're feeding them big, beautiful, biblical truths that they can grow up into. The classic text on this is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Notice first the goal of biblical instruction. The goal of biblical instruction, verses five and six, is hearts that love God. The goal of biblical instruction is hearts that love God. But notice next, the how of instruction, verse 7. The how of instruction is twofold. You teach them diligently, and you talk to them all the time. You teach them diligently, and you talk to them when you sit, walk, lie, and rise. There should be, this means, both formal times of teaching instruction and informal times of talking instruction. Now, most parents I know, myself included, 
are better at seizing unplanned, serendipitous occasions for instruction than we are planning and structuring formal occasions. Now, it's very easy when we're watching a movie with our kids and there's just this clear gospel illustration or this clear biblical moment or, or when your kid comes to you and says, Dad, can you just explain to me how to become a Christian? Yes, I can. Like those are the easy, spontaneous moments where we can grab it and instruct. The harder ones are planning for and structuring the more formal teaching occasions. And so the place to start with this is with family worship. Family worship. Dads, you need to lead the charge here as well. So let me give you a few words about the practice of family worship. Spurgeon once wrote, I agree with Matthew Henry when he says, they that pray in the family do well, they that pray and read the scriptures do better, but they that pray and read and sing do best of all. There is a completeness in that kind of family worship which is much to be desired. This is how I lead our family in worship. Not perfectly, but I try. I lead us in reading and discussing a passage of scripture. I lead us in singing a hymn that we're working to learn. And I lead us in praying. We want to do this daily. We do not do this daily. Usually it's three to four times a week. I'm not a perfect dad. I'm an aspiring dad. I'm trying. (laughs) And I invite you to try with me. Interestingly, LifeWay Research recently published the results of a a massive study they did on kids that grew up in in Christian homes. And interestingly, the research indicated that children who remained Christians as young adults, genuine Christians, grew up in homes where certain practices were present. They grew up in homes where certain practices were present. Guess what they were? Reading the Bible, praying, serving at church, and singing Christian songs. Three of the four things we can do in family worship. Beyond this, let me offer, lastly, three additional tips for family worships for you dads. One, have a regular place and time. Have a regular place and time. Ours is the living room right before bed. What's yours? Second, be brief and be bright. Be brief and be bright. Bright. In other words, don't be like me up here on Sunday morning talking for a long time. Instead, be brief and be bright. Give yourselves five to 10 minutes with little kids or 10 to 20 minutes with older kids and that should about do it. Number three, third and finally, dads, expect difficulties. Expect difficulties, okay? Because here's how it's gonna work out. One kid's gonna be twirling on the floor. The other one's gonna be whining about how long this is gonna go. Your wife might fall asleep as you're reading. No one's gonna answer the questions that you're asking. And then they're gonna ask you questions that you can't answer. (laughs) But dads, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't grow weary in doing good. In conclusion, to the whole message, not just that part, to the whole message. I realize today's message have probably felt like drinking from a fire hose. We've covered a lot, and yet I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. So more can be said on all of this, and more has been said on all of this. Dads, if you are parenting young children, I taught a seminar on this subject a few years ago. Um, there's like 
I don't know, hours of teaching. It's on our website under resources and then under classes. So you can find it there and I commend that study to you. More can be said and more is also going to be said. Uh, and that's because our own Jacob here is going to teach on parenting preteens and teens uh, in a few weeks in August. So all the v- those all of you that are, are parenting teens and preteens, all your answers are about to come. Like everything you need to know is coming. Okay, so just stay calm and carry on and tell Jacob what you want him to answer. This has been, uh, this has been a disciplining word. And for many of us, this series has been a disciplining or a corrective series. So let me leave you now with good news. Hebrews 12, six through 13. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirit and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, dads, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we receive this word as a disciplining, a corrective word from you, and we thank you that you love us enough to discipline us. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you for not leaving our children to the sinful side of us, but thank you for pursuing them and for pursuing us by giving us truth with grace. We thank you that we can receive this word as forgiven people, as people who know your love, and knowing your love, help us to now go and obey you. Help us to love you by our obedience. Help us to put this this word into action. Help us to not be hearers of the words only, but doers as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I said